when we're in darkness, I think John teaches us that the first thing you should do is cultivate love. So when you're seeking transcendence and when you're frustrated, I guess my pitch is that the first thing you should do is lean back into gratitude before you lean forward into darkness. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you're frustrated with um, the seeming impossibility of the tragedies that our, our brothers and sisters face on earth, that we lean back into gratitude, into what we've received from our brothers and sisters and from our God to then lean forward into the dark. You know, so I think that gratitude is one way of encapsulating kind of a practice of cultivating that love, which I think is really the engine that makes darkness into something that can transform us. Benedict Schaup is a doctoral candidate in systematic theology at the University of Notre Dame. He's currently writing a dissertation on the pneumatology and contemplative methodology, basically the spiritual theory and practice of the 16th century Spanish mystic, John of the Cross. I met Benedict this past summer at a conference in Adelaide, Australia, where he gave a great talk on the ways John of the Cross's mystical vision informs and potentially empowers seekers in our modern world. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. So Benedict, it's good to see you. It's been since we were in Australia, I think having lunch the last time we saw each other. That's uh, right. That's right. Yeah, it's great to see you this morning over Zoom. Thank you for taking time to come talk with me. Absolutely. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so we met, and like I mentioned Adelaide, uh, this past summer. I was really taken by the talk you gave there on what you described as a gospel of darkness. Now, I'll quickly add for our listeners that darkness here is not a synonym for evil. This is not that kind of darkness. Rather, it's a figure right. of what the 16th century Spanish priest John of the Cross famously labeled the dark night of the soul, uh, which is mm -hmm. a poetic and mystical account of how we draw closer to God. Now, Benedict, in your, in your talk, uh, you employ the language methodology of the dark night of the soul to our contemporary search for justice and transcendence. I'll ask you more questions about your talk later in our conversation, but I'm hoping to begin, you know, you can f tell us first about how you made this connection between a 16th century mystic, on the one hand, right, and these urgencies that we feel in our present moment. Yeah, that's a great question and a great place to start. The connection was really made for me in my own life, uh, so kind of on accident or or by providence, I guess we could say. Uh, I When I was in, after my freshman year of undergrad, uh, there was a summer that I was working construction. And uh, it was a strangely contemplative experience for me. There's a there's a lot of noise, a lot of machinery, but a lot of solitude actually, and, and kind of a verbal silence. And I prayed a lot that summer. Mm. And as I was praying, and there was this time of recollection when kind of, as I was working with my hands, kind of almost monastic, uh, I prayed a lot and started to have kind of a transformation in prayer where I was paying more attention to God during the day. And when I would read and do kind of my scripture reading and my spiritual reading, things were kind of coming alive. And there was a lot of emotion and a lot of uh, kind of the light and flame side of, of the spiritual life. And my dad, who's a physician, has a great theological library. So I went home one day and just pulled John across off the shelf. I kind of knew him by reputation and started reading and, and kind of took off from there. He became a spiritual guide and father for me. What was interesting that the, my next semester was a semester spent uh, in a, an, a Carthusian monastery in Vienna or in, uh, in Austria, outside of Vienna. It was a study abroad program and it was so it ended up being a very prayerful time for me again there and then when i got back to to campus uh in the u.s that all of that time in prayer and a more kind of contemplative lifestyle 
really drove me into uh, service. You know, I spent a lot of time with and and serving the poor and the sick in in the city that I was living in. And so there was this deep relationship between the two in my own experience. And John of the Cross was kind of the guide and the architect of that. So for me, it was a very personal origin and then has kind of also become my day job. I love that. You know, there, at BYU, there's a there's a study bar program. I've not been on it, though I'd love to, where, where the students and some faculty walk the Camino in Spain. Mm. Um, but I'm trying to get my head around a study abroad program in a Carthusian monastery. <laughs> it would be amazing, yeah. right? It was amazing. I mean, the it's no longer a functional monastery. There's a kind of a hotel and the, yeah, okay. this campus study abroad program. But it's 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 all there and it's still kind of steeped in prayer and the, the architecture is it's so phenomenal. You're in the foothills of the Alps and so it's extremely conducive. Where is to, this uh, in the Alps, by the way? Is this is this in a Gaming, Gaming, Austria. Okay. So it's actually I think about two hours outside of Vienna. Okay. See I, I once attended a conference actually. It was for the Society for the Study of Christian Spirituality back in twenty seventeen. Mm. And they they held it actually at this old monastery, it's now also a hotel and at the foothills of the Alps. But it was in Switzerland. So oh, great. I've had I've had a two day version of that experience. It was beautiful. There you by go. The way. I loved it. Um, Amazing. Okay, so I, I love how you kind of came across John of the Cross. This 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 intensifying prayer life and instigated mm-hmm. kind of a curiosity. And you found this book on your father's shelf. Can you tell us for a second about John of the Cross? Just a brief sketch of his life and work. Yeah, definitely. So as you were saying, he lived in the 1500s in Spain. So 1542 to 1591. Um, and he was he was born extremely poor, uh, grew up, was noticed kind of early for some academic talent, uh, decided to join the Carmelites who were in the city that he was living in, and they sent him on for further studies. But then he was actually wanted to become a Carthusian. He was kind of disillusioned, it seems, with academic life. And he uh, ran into Teresa of Avila, he was introduced to St. Teresa of Avila, the great reformer. And she brought him on board, kind of convinced him not to go to the Carthusians, to stay in the Carmelites and to do the kind of male half of the reform. And so they worked together for years and and things kind of started out great and strong. But this is Spain of the the era of the conquistadors and the Inquisition, so it's kind of a tough place. And uh, John actually, for his reform work, was was imprisoned by his religious brothers, the, the part of the order, the observants who were not interested in the reform. And he was in jail for nine months and he was tortured by his brothers, beaten by them. And uh, that experience, quite strangely, he he realized he was dying, staged a pretty spectacular escape, and uh, then kind of had this transformation where he came out and all of a sudden uh, he he had written in prison and then, you know, showed to his his religious brothers and sisters, this poetry that is some of the great poetry in, in world literature, and then started writing these commentaries on his poems. So his main prose works are actually comments that his religious sisters and brothers asked for him to kind of share, what do these poems mean, you know, mean to you and what could they mean to us? And so this started, I mean, he only lived for like 14 years after this, but in that period, it was intensely invested in the reform and in writing. Uh, and that's where his works come from. So this this moment of literal darkness and imprisonment that was also a moment he spoke to his one of his brothers about how this was the moment of of unparalleled intimacy with God, very mm-hmm. paradoxically, and then came out in this kind of creative and religious transformation. Um, so yeah, so that's the basic. He actually he again when he was 
dying of an infection. Um, again, he was very persecuted by his brother. So kind of the end of his life was very cruciform again, but he stayed very loving and faithful kind of in that period of his life. Okay. Thank you very much for that. So Bernard Begin, this great scholar of mysticism, um, talks a bit about, I mean, many things about John's life, but he mentions this period of imprisonment, right? Uh, during these years of reform, um, attempted reform. And he says that it was here um, in this prison um, moment of his life that John, you know, quoting McGinn, learned the real cost of discipleship, right? And mm-hmm. McGinn also writes, and I'm quoting McGinn again here, that one of the most remarkable things about John's imprisonment is that being locked up seems to have unlocked his creativity. So here's, yeah. I guess my question will be this for you. Do you agree with McGinn? I mean, and if so, how do you understand that creative spirit in John? I mean, was poetry kind of the vehicle for this spirit? Um, was this the kind of creativity that might have taken very different forms under different circumstances? Or do you see John as someone whose creativity was unlocked by God in very specific, very directed ways? That's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. He was a pretty creative person. So he kind of went to a trade school in his early life where he learned kind of painting and sculpture and so things like that. And he carved um, carved different religious figures during his life. He had, we have a couple sketches of his. Uh, one of them of a, a scene of the crucifixion is, is kind of a great work in its own right as a sketch. So he was a pretty creative person, probably wrote some poetry that we don't have before the imprisonment. I think that a good way into understanding the imprisonment, and this gets at a really cool relationship between artistic and religious inspiration, which I think are often intertwined in mysterious ways. I think it was this new union with God, this new sense of union that really, he uses the term overflowed into his poetry. And I think that that's at the heart of what you're saying of this turned into a vocation for him, that he was expressing and, and kind of bodying forth in his poetry something that he was undergoing with God and that that became a vehicle for for sharing that with other people. Um, and so I think that it's it's both an artist of time of artistic inspiration, religious inspiration, and really a movement kind of outwards as well. That becomes the basis of a lot of his ministry and his continuing impact of the world. Okay. Let me ask you about his poetry. Are you drawn to John's poetry? You mentioned a minute ago, and I think this is a, it's a great phrase. His poetry is kind of a classic in world literature, right? Yeah. Are, are you, but it's a 16th century poetry. Are you drawn to John's poetry as poetry? That is, as kind of a, as, as a rich aesthetic artifact? Or is it really the theological and the experiential aspects of the poetry that you find most compelling? Yeah, I, I think it's both. I am... Um... When I was, again, when I was in undergrad and, and for a couple years afterwards, there were these moments in my life where I would almost feel like I was kind of losing the thread of my story with God and needed kind of a time of recollection and, and recovery. And there were a few texts that I would go back to and really kind of immerse myself in. And the cycle of John's poetry was one of them. Um, the Book of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs was another, T.S. Eliot's Quartet's. And so I think for me, there was, I mean, they all have kind of a common denominator of, of kind of synthesizing uh, beauty and, and being classic literature, but with remarkable spiritual depth and insight. And so I think I kind of needed both. And I think that's part of what the fact that it's great poetry, part of what it's able to do is, is move us. You know, we're really able to kind of empathize, be drawn in. And then the fact that it's also got this spiritual richness and comes from this personal place. I think there's something infectious about it because of the synthesis of those different dimensions. 
I love that. Yeah, I teach a class actually, literature and spiritual experience, which yeah. I absolutely love, and it's it's all about that synthesis, so right? And it's it's great. You know, one day you should come out to BYU and actually kind of present some of this stuff in that class. We wonder. I would love to. Yeah. Let me ask you one more question about John per se, and we'll kind of go to your your, your conference talk and some of the ideas sure. there, which is more on John. But this is this dark night of the soul um, mm-hmm. has, and it's, this can become quite complicated in its theology, right? So I guess I'm not asking for kind of the, the PhD level uh, sure. explanation here, but but for listeners, I think this is an important distinction. Uh, John uh, writes that this that this dark night of the soul has both an active and a passive dimension. Right, and yeah. there's more than one night, as it were. Can you mm-hmm. understand the difference between the, the the active and the passive? What that means for John? Yeah, definitely. And I think I think a background piece of information of what he means by night. Night is is a modality that love can take, and particularly love, insofar as it's driving out kind of its competitors. Idolatry is kind of an important word to have in our mind of how is true love of God and neighbor. Part of what that true love does is kind of edges out things that are going to compete with true love, right? And I think that part of John's wonderful insight is that really hurts. You know, that's a purifying labor to follow love's movement to kind of clear away for its true movement and instinct. And so the active and the passive thing, I think, fits into this general scheme of of darkness as a movement of love, a purifying movement of love. The, The active part is really what we can do to participate in this movement you know what can we do to kind of clear out and uproot these things that that are really trying to choke out our ability to love god and love our fellow human beings for their own sake and not out of self-interest or some other motive the passive part and this gets more into john as a mystical author somebody who's writing about a kind of prayer that's really a gift that you kind of wait upon and god lifts you up into Uh, called generally in the tradition contemplation, and that's John's term for it. And that in contemplation, God is giving you a sharing in his own love, his own activity of love. And so when he's starting to, when God is starting to act in that way, it can still purify us. And that's John's insight in the passive night, that even when God is taking the lead and giving us a sharing in his love, it can really show us some ugly things about ourselves and challenge us in difficult ways. But it's a time for us not so much to be taking the initiative, but to be following the movement that kind of what he's up to, you know. And so that the passive dimension is really when God's action has come to predominate in contemplative prayer. He's really focused on how you can follow and be attentive to these the subtleties of these movements, cooperate with what with what God has initiated. That's a great explanation. You know, I think that uh, anybody who has a really serious spiritual life, a prayer life, understands mm-hmm. the difference between one's own prayers and and senses of God's responses to those prayers, right? Yes. One can't control the latter. One is in a passive totally. place, by a, a more contemplative place but in, in the latter. Ask you, I, I said Ed, this was the last question about John per se, but I, I lied because I want to ask you one Great. more thing about this. And this comes, this is one of John's commentaries, some things he writes there. Um, let me just read a couple things to you and get you to, to kind of respond. I got a question, I guess, at the back of this. He says, the dark night is an inflowing of God into the soul, which cleanses it of its ignorances and imperfections, habitual, natural, and spiritual, he says. Then later he says, "Um, for for as the infused divine contemplation contains many excellences in the highest degree, and as the soul that receives them, not yet purified, has many extreme miseries, and because two contraries cannot exist, cannot coexist in the same subject, 
the soul must suffer and be in pain. This is a question kind of for you. Is that idea that the soul suffers and is in pain, is that an idea that you think is inherent to the nature of spiritual life? Or do you think it's an expression of John's cultural moment? I ask only because I do have an experience having God reveal weaknesses <laughs> that can be yeah. quite painful. On the other hand, you know, there is I often associate God's presence with a sense of, of love and care that um, mm. is, is quite um, uh, thrilling, moving. that um, mm. feels much more... Uh, redemptive in his nature. Does John write so much about pain, you think, because he really was pursuing a more intensive spiritual practice, or is the pain reflective of kind of the difficulties of that 16th century moment? Wow. Yeah, that's a really good question. If it's too big, just say next question. (laughs) No, (laughs) I would love to at least attempt it. I think he really is, certainly there are things tied to, you can't take an author like this out of his context. You know, there are certain things tied to to what he's up to and to what he experienced. I think it's really beneficial that he attempts to point to the aspects of this that are more universal. For example, he doesn't ever say uh, in a really straightforward way, like imprisonment caused the dark night for me, right? His point is really that a gift of God causes the dark night and the abuse and those kinds of things that were perpetrated against him there's some distance that he creates between those realities so i think his point is he really he he's a paradoxical figure because on the one hand he presents in a way that's really uh unusual in the christian tradition the heights of union possible with god in this life and and the the passion of that and that's initially what really drew me to him but he also, because of that, I think in a way, he has a he can sustain a very low kind of sense of where we start and how kind of perverted our our ways of dealing with good things often are. I, I like to think about almost like we metabolize things the wrong way. You know, like somebody says something nice to us or we're chosen for something, and we like turn that into pride instead of humility. <laughs> you know, right. yeah, like yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. And I think his insight is that what God wants is for us to love as he does to participate in God's own love and that that really is going to have to come at the cost of not only many of the things that we love but even the ways that we love kind of the very mode and our approach and I think the undoing of those kind of metabolic processes like the undoing of not only what we love but how we love not only what we know but how we know it's really uncomfortable so I think really I think he's on to something in that I think we really do need to have a lot of kind of uh, honesty about the ways that we can take good things and kind of pervert them and and our need to kind of rewrite the system, you know, kind of have a system shut down and reboot and and try again on a new level, you know? Yeah, that's a great response. That really, that's that's, tr- that's very, very helpful, Benedict. Thank you. Let's turn now to your work on John. Um, right. uh, you know, it, it, I'm curious, you know, why you felt compelled to turn to John in tackling issues like justice and uh, yeah. the kind of the desire for transcendence. You, there are a lot of really important mystical writers. You mentioned Teresa of Avila, you know, Meister Eckhart, Thomas Merton, there are dozens yeah, of right. others. What was it about John that made him seem so relevant here? Yeah, definitely. There's a, a few peripheral things, like my own experience is one of them, that this was so personal for me and the way that John kind of guided me in both those searches, you know, and also kind of in different literature, engaging with French phenomenology and this kind of thing. But I think at the core of it is I'm attracted to a kind of balance and specificity in his approach to darkness. I think there's kind of three things. One of them is we've talked about that there's a 
motivational element that love is behind any fruitful kind of darkness and that our first step is to always lean into love and cultivate love and then the two elements in darkness one is that darkness challenges you and then darkness invites you into something new and i think those twin aspects of the challenge and the invitation that's really where i saw a message both for people in institutional religions and for people beyond that you know what these confrontations with failure in our search for the transcendent failure in our search for justice uh they can they don't need to they can lead to despair but they can you know if we lean into love in the right ways i think that they can challenge us to be humble to be reverent before god and each other to recognize their weaknesses and then to hope for something totally new you know to really explore not just another way of doing the same old thing but really wait for god to break in and maybe try something that's that's truly different. Um, and so, yeah, I think his, those kinds of balances and specificities in his work, I think are really poignant for, for us today. Okay. As you think about the kind of the, the, the expressed desire we find in so many forms for justice, mm. I mean, and, and there's so many causes, right, that are seem so right. urgent. Um, yeah. I don't tend to see a lot of, um, social justice causes that are rooted in some kind of experience of an experience of theology meaning kind of lid theology meaning a, a spiritual life um how, how hopeful are you that john can actually help us to lean into love differently to kind of to, to, to live differently such that we can achieve mm. some of these things that we actually want to achieve is this is this the kind of thing where john hypothetically might actually do something to help us achieve something like justice or do you see it as 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 no john in actuality this is this is this is that you see manifestations of this in ways that make sense to you not only as a as a as a student of theology but as someone living in a troubled world that's a great question i think that one of the things that gives me hope i was just i'm in a group that's reading through isaiah right now and a lot of these themes come up i mean purifying fire a remnant you know these kind of the way that God's love can can really hurt, the way that God's love has a heavenly and eschatological, transformative, unimaginable edge where the lion and the lamb would, would lay down together. And when I see that, I think what gives me hope, I mean, John of the Cross, he's not for everyone. I mean, he's a, a 16th century author. He can be challenging to read. I, I hope everybody listening tries to read some and we can <laughs> talk more about that. But I think his what he has to share about a spiritual journey that we don't we're not gonna we're not gonna solve the problems that we face if we stay where we are and i think that that invitation and when i see that in my friends in their ways of reading scripture in their ways of challenging their own lives you know when i see that in people around me who by leaning into the contemplative transcendent side of things are truly empowered and and actually i think that's one of the things that it's easy to to say that people talk about a union of contemplation and action, a union of prayer and activity, but that runs deeply in my own experience and in the people around me. And so I think that's something really hopeful to me that I think when people really lean in that, that this is in some way fundamentally the case, that love of God and love of neighbor are actually necessarily united in both directions. And so that gives me hope that there's solutions to be had when we take that seriously that we have not even imagined yet. That's, I love that answer. You know, I, I, I certainly can say for my own case that, you know, that 
um, what I feel able to understand and feel and do uh, with God's help is so much greater than I can do with on, yes. just my own. And that Absolutely. binding, that mutual binding of love and God and neighbor, neither one complete without the other, I think yeah. is really a great insight, Benedict. Thank you so much. So you're talking Adelaide, uh, Dress John's Dark Night of the Soul by way of the contemporary French uh, philosopher and theologian Jean-Yves Lacoste. Um, and Lacoste uh, distinguishes between two cells, right? But mm. The empirical eye and the eschatological eye. And these are important to your argument. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about the difference between the, the two, the empirical and the eschatological self. Yeah, definitely. I would love to. I, I'm going to kind of step out of uh, Lacoste is really brilliant and engaged heavily with Heidegger and continental philosophy. So I'm, I might do a little damage to his thought by kind of taking it <laughs> out of okay. that context. But here we go. Here's a, So the empirical eye, um, he's got this sense that we have there's a there's a kind of consciousness or experience that's basically available to kind of everyone everywhere at all times there's kind of this lowest common denominator what we mean when we use the word experience let's say at least in in the western culture that he's addressing there's some sense of similarity we can we can wake up and talk to each other about the weather and we have this sense that we're talking about the same thing we can talk about friendship we can talk about uh, hatred. We can talk about these things and and have this common denominator of experience. And I think one of Lacoste's great insights. So he calls that kind of common denominator of consciousness the empirical eye. What we're kind of walking around sharing in common. I think one of his great insights, and this is somewhere where he thinks Heidegger is kind of right on the money, is that if we limit our definition of experience to precisely that, then what we can't do is have a direct experience of God. Mm qua that kind of experience, experience understood in that way. And I think that that's very helpful because it's kind of a challenge, you know, of, because I think that many of us walk around with with a hunger, with a restlessness, with a desire, articulated in different forms. But Lacoste is saying, you know what, maybe maybe we're, we're caught in a paradox the minute we, we ex- try to express that desire. We want to experience the absolute. But what if our term for experience actually precludes that from happening. So what he invites us to is this wonderful kind of, a it's both an imaginative exercise, it's a philosophical exercise. He says, okay, well, we've heard about the absolute. We're kind of restless. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, but he thinks most people are. So what if you tried to live in a way that, or what if you imagined what consciousness would look like defined before the absolute. He has this lovely phrase, being before the absolute. Mm. This would be a totally different set of coordinates. And he thinks right now, probably be unexperienceable to most of us, basically unimaginable. We could maybe chart it, we can kind of lay it out, but he calls it the eschatological eye, the eye that has to do with heaven, with union with God, right? And so he creates what seems like this dichotomy between what we think of as experience now and this kind of goal, this possibility that, and then his wonderful move is to say, what if part of to be human is to be able to live into the coordinates of being before God, even when we haven't experienced God yet. And that invitation I think is so challenging of, and I think this is really his great reading of the spiritual darkness tradition. What if we lean into that which goes beyond our experience? And he's he's actually includes important elements of hope in that there's experience will become redefined when we lean into that 
You know, it's not a, we don't have control over God. We don't have control over him coming to experience, but through especially what the tradition calls discernment and then mysticism, there are ways of coming to awareness of what God is up to, but he really wants to start with this paradox. You know, the difference between what I experience now, the empirical eye, and that which I can kind of conceive maybe as possible, the eschatological eye, and then leaning into the tension between the two and then starting to see the way that syntheses of the two start to happen. Uh, so I think that's what he's up to with those moves. Okay. That's a great explanation, by the way. I love that. And I love this idea about the human experience being actually what leans into what is more than human, right? Leans into this eschatological the sense of ourselves before the absolute, before God, right? Yeah. It's, it's only before God, which is greater than human, that we become fully mm -hmm. ourselves, right? As, yeah. as, as part of the divine creation. That's, I think that's a beautiful idea. You know, the way that you, in your, in your, in your, in your talk in, in Adelaide, which was just so great, um, the way that you kind of, uh, kind of resolved a lot of these thoughts from, you know, the cost and, and drawn to the cross and, and uh, um, Gustav Gutierrez, uh, you know, another, yes. another theologian, was through uh, the importance of gratitude. Mm -hmm. Gratitude somehow brings these things together. And I wonder if you could explain, because it's such a hopeful idea and it's a really important yeah. idea. I wonder if you could explain that for us briefly. Yeah, definitely. And I think gratitude, again, is something that I think crosses over both for people, I mean, I'm a practicing Catholic, so kind of in institutional religion, and then people outside of institutional religion. Many of our fellow Americans right now I think that gratitude really reaches, um, has a, a, a broad appeal and can speak to the fruitfulness of spiritual darkness. And this goes back to the idea that I think what empowers us to, to live into darkness as a fruitful reality is a movement of love. And I think gratitude, Gustavo Gutierrez, who's a great writer in, in something called liberation theology, an idea of how to apply theology to the plight of, of the poor and the kind of the downtrodden and the downtrodden of history. And one of his great lines is that uh, nothing asks more of us than a gratuitous gift. When we receive something freely, what that calls us to do is respond freely. And there's not really a limit to a free response. And so Gutierrez has this instinct that this is what God is doing to us, is loving us gratuitously, and that what's going to accomplish the most in terms, even in terms of, of justice on earth now in history, is going to be living from a place of gratitude for that gratuity. Mm. And I think it goes back into, you know, when we're in darkness, I think, I think John teaches us that the first thing you should do is cultivate love. So when you're seeking transcendence and when you're frustrated, I guess my pitch is that the first thing you should do is lean back into gratitude before you lean forward into darkness mm -hmm. you know and when you're frustrated with um the seeming impossibility of the tragedies that our our brothers and sisters face on earth that we lean back into gratitude into what we've received from our brothers and sisters and from our god to then lean forward into the dark you know so i think that gratitude is one way of encapsulating kind of a practice of cultivating that love which i think is really the engine that makes darkness into something that can transform us. That's great. You, you're a delight to talk with. You really are. Um, and there's such, I love the clarity and uh, vigor of, of the ways that you explain these uh, very complicated but really important ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and ideas that really kind of touch the core of so much of what I think a lot of people kind of identify as spiritual life. 
I've got time to ask you maybe two more questions. Great. Alrighty. Uh, so you're a student of theology, and I assume that, you know, and you talked about part of the draw toward theology was this love for God that you have. Mm-hmm. Right? And here's the questions, I guess. Does your experience of God coincide with what John describes? I mean, in your own way, do you mm-hmm. find that whatever light you feel you attain only comes at the cost of this kind of darkness? Mm-hmm. I suppose I'm asking, mm-hmm. what I'm really getting at is, is this question here. If you were to write a mystical poem instead of a dissertation, okay, um, <laughs> if you were a mystical poem or a treatise of some kind, would it resemble John's or would it be somehow fundamentally different? Yeah, wow. I think I certainly can't emulate his poetic style. I and mean, he's got something there that I, that I uh, but I think in my own kind of more pedestrian American English kind of a way, I think I would be after similar things. I think I've really been shaped by his insights. Here's an example. Uh, as a Catholic, one of the things that we confront in faith is the sacraments, right? And so we talk about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, which if we want to talk about uh, light and darkness, there's a lot that goes on, I think, in, in a Catholic's relationship with the Eucharist. So here's something that I go through daily, right? Is that there are times where through discernment and gratitude, my time at mass is really vibrant, you know, and really kind of transformative and compelling and, and emotional. And, and I think a really good sense. There's a lot of times when it's pretty boring. You know, there's a lot of times when what I'm actually doing is chasing my toddlers around outside of church, you know, <laughs> and, and I think that one of the things that like, I, I find in my own life is that I, then I apply things that John is talking about, you know, of like, Hey, so what if what's going on here is how, how can I lean into the fact that maybe what's going on here is beyond my meager attempts at defining experience? You know, what if what's going on here is inviting me to maybe a little bit more humility about what I'm able to know now? Maybe maybe some repentance. You know, maybe I'm implicated in my lack of vision here. And then also some rest, some just good old praise and doxology. You know what? God you're doing something here and it doesn't really matter that much how I feel about it right now. You know, you, you are, you're the savior God, you're up to something and I'm going to own that right now. Um, kind of own it beyond myself, own it on my own behalf, own it on, own it on your behalf, God, you know? And so I, I think, I mean, these are, these are the ways that he shaped just the way that I walk in life. So I think if I was to write something in a, in a more kind of spiritual vein, uh, maybe something less dry than my academic prose. I think it would take a, a fundamentally similar shape to what he does. I love that. Yeah, you're, you're, you're in your own way, you're kind of playing poet laureate to my own experience here and what you <laughs> described there. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Let me leave you with this. It's, and it's, it right. goes back to um, uh, something that uh, uh, McGinn writes, uh, Bernard McGinn mm. writes about John. Uh, and, and McGinn says this, I'm quoting McGinn here. Although John sometimes talks about a general imitation of Christ in one's life, His fundamental concern is imitating Christ in bearing the cross. Truly devout people, John writes, seek the living image of Christ crucified within themselves, and thereby they are pleased rather to have something taken away from them and to be left with nothing. Okay, so today, you know, scholarship on spirituality places much of its emphasis on human flourishing, right, and for good reason. But thoughts of taking up one's cross and following Christ can really seem to be some tension with that idea of flourishing. I guess my questions are these. Do you try to reconcile these pulls in your mm. own spiritual life? And if so, how do you do it? Wow, yeah. Uh, there's, in kind of the Catholic theological tradition, 
there's a great line that kind of encapsulates this idea of of God and human flourishing. It's this idea that grace builds on nature and perfects it. So what God is up to doesn't eviscerate or destroy what God has created, good, but actually builds on it and perfects it. Now, in the Ascent of Mount Carmel, John mentions this line. You know, somebody will say to me about my theology of the dark night, well, doesn't grace build on nature? It seems that the dark night destroys nature. And John says, yes, it does. <laughs> and moves on with his theology, right? Now, it's a little misleading on John's part because what McGinn says, which I think is right, is that the dark night doesn't destroy nature, but interrupts it. And it interrupts it for a reason to rebuild it. But I love his point and I love the intensity of his writing on that to kind of flip over this classic position in the tradition of flourishing. I think what he's saying is, um, whose idea of flourishing? You know, is it our really our kind of, I mean, I think often my notions of flourishing are pretty petty and pretty self-interested and self-involved. And I think John's insight is, you know what? I think we're going to have to like reboot to get this right. I think we're going to have to kind of burn it down and build it again. Uh, not because, I mean, he's he's there that everything that's good in nature is going to be built upon and glorified. But I think that it's a great challenge for us of how confident are we that we understand our own flourishing. And maybe there's some, maybe we need to introduce some darkness into that to trouble the waters a little bit. Maybe maybe God has a vision that's bigger than what we've imagined before. So I think that's kind of John's challenge to to human flourishing as a as a starting point. You know, maybe maybe we need a little darkness, a little apophaticism in dealing with this. This has been such a delight talking with you. Um, this has Likewise. been just great. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and really, but I think thank you for your just your insights, your work. Um, I look forward to seeing and hearing a lot more of it in the years to come. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It was really a delight. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Starley Pratt. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.